0: Well, good morning and welcome back to the River Church as we continue to prepare ourselves during this Advent for uh, what will be a very, very exciting celebration in all of our homes, and that is the celebration of the birth of Christ. Advent is the anticipation, the waiting of the coming of Christ himself, and that's what we've been looking at now uh, for several weeks and we're going to continue right up to Christmas Eve and we're 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 exploring simple christmas which is colossians 1:27 as our theme that what paul is praying for is, is that we understand it is christ in us the hope of glory that's the simplicity of christmas is christ in you the hope of glory the hope glory is Everything you've ever wanted and everything that you've hoped for is in Christ, who is in you. Because he has come, we have this hope of all things, present and future. Um, as, um, as one writer says, this is uh, Meister Eckhart, In the 1200s, during the Holy Roman Empire, was a monk and a philosopher. He said, God expects one thing of you. And that is that you should come out of yourself insofar as you are created, being made, and let God be God in you. Let God be God in you. Come out of yourselves. This Advent season, simple Christmas, is realizing that you've got to get out of yourselves and let God be God in you, the hope of glory. If you are filled up with yourself, there's no place for Christ in you. That's what he's saying. As N.T. Wright, one of my favorite writers, talking about the hope of glory, he says, if we get hope wrong, the hope of the Messiah... The hope of a king, a savior, and I add, who took on frail flesh and died. It's a beautiful hymn, by the way, parentheses. This is the song, My Song of Love Unknown. Have you ever heard that song? And in that song, it's beautiful. It says, my song is love unknown, my savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown, that they might lovely be, "Oh, who am I that my, for my sake, who am I? For my sake, the Lord should take frail flesh and die." It's beautiful. Um, Fernando Ortega, one of them uh, do yourself a favor and listen to Fernando Ortega sing this song, "Love Unknown." It is beautiful. It will set your mind right. It will just warm your heart. It will it will lift you up into the heavenlies. It's a beautiful song. And what Wright is saying is that if you get this hope wrong, this hope of this one who came and died for frail flesh, we're gonna lose its surprise. See, we're supposed to be surprised by hope, surprised by Christ. Are we surprised? Have we lost the element of surprise? And that's what I want to look at this morning. How is that going to happen in your life? If you lose that, it will lose its power to transform your life in the present. Ah, now I got your attention. It's going to impact your present. If you lose the, the, the element of the surprise of what Christ is doing... And how will this happen? It's not by accident. It's not by sitting back and observing. It happens through what I'm calling a close encounter. Simple Christmas is a close encounter of the most magnificent kind, the most weighty kind. What's a close encounter? Well, it's when you least expect it. There in front of you is some scene, a person, an event that, that stupefies you. It's you're you're left with awe and wonder. You're surprised, here's a better word. You're ambushed. When's the last time you've been ambushed by a close encounter that's left you speechless? I mean, that's that's what we're supposed to feel in this moment of anticipation of the advent. Ambushed by the love of Christ, ambushed by his coming. I mean, I've had many ambushes in my life. Lake Powell as a kid, Lake Trinity, we'd go water skiing and and we'd pull in and and we'd get on the boat and I'd look out and see the red rocks of Lake Powell or the beautiful uh, timbers around Lake Trinity and just be in awe as a young person of the scenery, of where I was, the stillness of the lake, the beauty all around me. It was just a remarkable encounter with nature. I remember taking my wife to Switzerland for the first time, and we were on a speaking uh, uh, engagement in Zurich. And then I said, You've got to see Grindelwald. You've got to go to, we've, we've got to see the Eiger. We've got to get up to the Swiss Alps. And so it was late, late that night, and we worked our way up the mountain, got into our hotels, f- fell asleep, and in the morning, opened up the blinds in Murin. And I had no idea where our hotel room was. And there, right out the window, is the Eiger, the majestic peak of one of the most beautiful tops, pikes of all of Switzerland. There's a number of them, but this one is absolutely. Sp- we just, you just, you just, in awe. You take it in. So many moments like that. Um, I, I, personal engagements. I remember being in Kigali. I could go on and on and talk about these close encounters that have left me this way. I remember being in Kigali, Rwanda with my good friend Tommy Allen and we were touring around seeing Rwanda and looking for opportunities for ministry and he took us into the slums behind the city of Kigali down this dirt road and these, these mud huts and there in this little square were a group of of men drinking coffee and we were invited in to sit on these little stumps in the dirt and we, we had an encounter with some of the most beautiful people I have ever met and they were so godly and loving and, and stripped away of all the things that we think make us really happy and valued and all there was was coffee with these smiles and These conversations. These are the moments in life where you're you're captured. And that's what we're talking about this morning. I want to look at one of these close encounters. Not by accident, not not by sitting back or being consumed by the demands of the day. If you're too busy, you're gonna miss it. But people that take the initiative are going to get this to happen. They step out in faith. The Christian life is a walk of faith. We know that. How are you walking by faith today? You walk into the Christian life. It doesn't happen to you. You don't sit back and wait for it. If you're not up and taking the initiative and moving in a certain direction, anticipating, waiting, whether it's reading something or exploring my new thing, in my personal time with the Lord, is sketching. And I'm sketching, diagrams, sketching images from the scriptures. And I drew a lamb today that's going to apply to this passage this morning, that, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as John says. And so I'm drawing the lamb and writing these verses and, 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 and sketching things. And, and it's a new encounter. And I'm looking at it as I'm, as I'm sketching and writing I'm thinking more deeply and intimately. I'm I'm connecting. I'm waiting for an encounter. It doesn't happen by accident. If you take the initiative, St. Augustine, he heard a voice, take up and read, and he read, and read Romans 13 verse 4, and put on Christ and took off the flesh. And it transformed his life in that close encounter close encounters happen often when you're connected relationally with others and that's what we find in John chapter 1 and I want to show you three kind of a movement in relationships in John chapter 1 of these close encounters see I think expecting and getting the most out of the Advent is having a close encounter And Jesus wants to have a close encounter with you. And here are three, here's three ways in which Jesus encountered the early disciples. Here they are. John chapter 1 verse 35. We looked last week at John chapter 1 that we set up this whole scene that Jesus himself is the word that from the beginning who became flesh. He was God, always God, always present with God. He is God from the very beginning. And he is the one who now comes in the flesh, incarnate, vulnerable, to meet our needs, to come to our level. That's that's Jesus and John's recognition, the fact that I am not the Christ. That's what we looked at last week. And this week now, John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in verse 35, again, the next day, John was standing with some of his disciples. Isn't it interesting? John had disciples before Jesus did. See, a disciple is just a learner and a follower of a rabbi. But John was a prophet. And anyone interested in the things of God would be around John at this point at this place, at this location, if you wanted to be part of the inner circle of encountering God, you would probably know John. And John had, this, had some disciples, and he turns them, he looks and sees Jesus walking and says, behold, there's the Lamb of God. The two of the disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. They, just, they left John and started following Jesus. If that's the Lamb of God, we're going after this guy. And Jesus turned and saw them following. He said to him, what do you seek? In other words, what do you want is really the way it's written. What do you want? They're they're looking at him. You know, I don't know. We don't know what we want. They said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? What an interesting question. Where do you live? Well, he says, come and see. You'll see. You'll see where I live. You'll see what I do. You'll see who I am. Just come follow me. Hang out. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, it was about the 10th hour, and one of the two of her heard John speak and followed him, and then Andrew and Simon, Peter's, Peter's brother. And, and he found first Simon, and he said to Simon, we found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, Jesus looked at Simon and said, you're the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. He changed his name. So Andrew and Simon were fishermen, they meet Jesus, and Jesus looks at Simon and renames him. The next day, he purposed to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. And he said to him, and by the way, Philip's from the same hometown that Andrew and Peter are from. They're friends, and they all know John. See the relational connection and the movement here? And so Peter, so now Philip, who's also a fisherman, meets Jesus, and Jesus says, well, follow me. Come follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael. And he said to him, We have found whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus the, Naz- the Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael says to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And he said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming, and he said, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Encounters, personal encounters, one after another. That's what we're noticing in this passage. They're connected relationally, desiring to meet God, and they encounter Jesus one at a time. And I want to group these encounters in threes. First John, then I want to look at Andrew and Simon and Philip, the fishermen. So John the prophet, Andrew, Peter, Simon, and Philip, they're the fishermen, and then Nathanael. And Nathanael is the contemplative seeker. Three kinds of encounters by three different individuals. And I want you to see their, the characteristics that describe the kind of person that encounters Jesus, and I want you to see, subsequently, what they discovered about Jesus in each of those encounters. Because you'll have an encounter with Jesus. And he sees you. And he wants wants to encounter you personally. As I said, close encounters with Jesus are weighty experiences. For some, it's pretty frightening to think that when Jesus encounters us, everything could really change. I mean, think about it. Look at this, what we just studied. I mean, follow me. Like, well, I've already got something going on in my life. Jesus says, follow me. He changes one guy's name. He changes their profession. John gets beheaded. Nathaniel realizes Jesus actually can see through walls and see him or see into the future. I mean, it's pretty frightening. Each one of them realize that Jesus is the king of Israel, the Messiah. Something supernatural about him Sent by God. But it's scary. And some, I think, are also too wounded to encounter God. Meister Eckhart says there's a place in the soul where you've never been wounded. And that's the place you connect with God. It's that pl- part of you that is preserved for a close encounter with Jesus. Their weighty experiences. I mean, think of Elijah. Elijah had a close encounter with God. And when God met Elijah, he gave him a great responsibility. Rudolf Otto says, closer to the divine we get, the more finite and small we feel. But also how grand and majestic God becomes. What happens when we meet Jesus? A close encounter of the other kind of the most magnificent, majestic, imposing kind, the weightiness of all. And after all, what is happening in this text is a great announcement that things are about to change. Things are about to change. So John, the prophet, meets Jesus. Andrew, Simon, and Philip, the fishermen, meet Jesus. And Nathaniel, the contemplative seeker, meets Jesus. And notice the progression through relational connection. These individuals were all connected relationally. They were all around in Palestine seeking truth. The consolation of Israel. That is the bringing together of the promises of God. God was doing something in their midst. They were expecting that. They were expecting God to bring together all that he was promising in the Old Testament. And bring it together in a culmination with with an explosion of of reality that's going to change the course of history. And of course, it's the bringing of Christ. That's what changes everything. And so we notice this progression. We notice the relational connection, and we see these encounters. And the first one is John. In John chapter 1, John, who is a prophet, and... We talked a little bit about John and how he said he was not the Christ last week. But notice what he does say. He says these words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Nothing more profound in this passage could be spoken of than to understand who Jesus is and how John saw him. John was a prophet. John was the last prophet that announced the coming of Christ. And as a prophet, he would speak on God's behalf, not his own behalf. He would speak what God says. So he was a person that was committed to the word, committed to God. And, and when God revealed Jesus to him in this new season of his life, remember, they, they, they were cousins. John knew Jesus. And yet now in this moment, Jesus becomes more clear to him in terms of his purpose And something happens in this encounter. He says he sees him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Back in 30 and down in 35. There he is, the Lamb of God. There's the Lamb of God. What does this mean? It means that Jesus himself is the one that from the beginning of the history of the Old Testament, Jesus fulfills this idea of sacrifice from from the very beginning from, the, from when, when, when Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden in Genesis chapter four, the very next scene that we have outside of the garden, Adam and Eve have children, Cain and Abel, and as we understand, Cain brings a fruit a, a, a offering to God, but Abel brings An animal sacrifice. Why is he bringing an animal sacrifice? And why in Genesis 4 does it say that that's the better sacrifice? Because since the very beginning, the idea idea of redemption, the idea of forgiveness, the idea of forgiving debt, the idea of coming back into a right relationship with God requires sacrifice. And the entire Old Testament describes this idea of the Israelites needing to sacrifice an animal for the purpose of being in right relationship with God. Blood has to flow in order to be connected rightly with God. All throughout the Bible, all throughout the Old, this idea of a lamb. And John. Chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus himself describes himself like a lamb. You think of a lamb that is docile and gentle and they're submissive creatures. Very, very submissive. Dumb, but submissive. They they get disoriented quickly. They they are very dependent creatures. And Jesus sees himself in John 5, 30 when he says, "I I do not do anything on my own account. I always check with the Father. I'm guided by the shepherd, the good shepherd. God, the Father, is the good shepherd. And Jesus saw himself as a lamb. Isaiah 53, verse 13, it says that Jesus himself will be led to slaughter as a lamb. He will be that lamb. We find in Matthew... Jesus, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, Not my will, but thy will be done. We see him handing over in a submissive way like a lamb. Jesus played into this role of being a lamb. And yet, without sin. Without sin. Jesus is the lamb without sin who takes away the sins of the world. That's who John saw. That's who Christ is this morning to us. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5:21. He who he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. It's the whole story of animal sacrifice. Going back to Genesis 4, Genesis 22. Remember Abraham's taking his son, God told, take your only son and sacrifice him. The idea of sacrifice was already in place. And then Isaac says, where will the sacrifice come from? Well, the ram will come from the thicket. It's an interesting comment. That Abraham believed that God would provide an animal for sacrifice for Abraham and Isaac. Out of the thicket. And sure enough, Jesus will come as that ram, that lamb, that animal. Out of the thicket of the world to be the sacrifice. All the way in Genesis 22, Exodus 29, daily the people of Israel would slaughter a lamb for the sacrifices of sin. Isaiah 53, the lamb is a person. The lamb now in Isaiah becomes a person, a messiah. So now what's happening is we're preparing in the Old Testament the idea of an animal sacrifice will be a person, and by by the prophets now in Isaiah, they're getting ready. And then John 1, behold, there he is, the one who's become flesh. The Word of God is the Lamb of God. It's in a person. It's the person of Christ. And we see that. Hebrews 9 tells us that blood saves the sacrifice of blood is the only way to forgive sins. First Peter 1, 9, 1.19, probably the most important verse, is that we were redeemed not by perishable things of gold and silver, but with precious blood as of lamb, unblemished, spotless, because he takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is described as a lamb, unblemished, spotless, perfect. As George Herbert says in a beautiful, beautiful poem called The Agony, sin is the press and vice. Love is that liquor sweet and most divine. And and George Herbert's describing Jesus himself as the one who is going to take away the sin through his love. But we must taste that juice which on the Christ a pike did set again, a brooch. That's what Herbert says. The idea of a pike, it's, it's like a peak, and it's going to break. It's going to pierce Christ. And when it pierces Christ, what comes a is the blood of Christ. And the blood of Christ, uh, there's, a, there's an image, and I want to see it. It's, it's in Germany. And it's an it's a old painting of Jesus. And he has been speared here and blood is flowing out and he's been speared by a woman with a crown on her knees and spears her and has, a, has a, uh, a chalice and the chalice is being filled up with blood. It's what we do on Sunday morning when we go to the communion. We remember that Christ's blood just literally is a brooch It's being poured out. And without it, we have no hope. The hope of glory. You have nothing without this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, all forgiveness requires suffering. And really, we have two options in life, don't we? It comes down to two options. When we get hurt, when a debt is required, we make that other person pay the debt. We do it through our language. We do it through our attitude. We do it through lots of ways. But there's a second way. You absorb the pain into yourself and forgive. And that's what Christ did. Didn't expect us to pay. He absorbed it into ourselves. So we no longer have to dwell in that pain. I've been thinking of something recently. I've been dwelling on something, and it's taking over my mind. you even noticed that? Joyce Meyer did a little short little clip. I loved listening to her on, on Instagram, and, and she did this short little clip that basically says, whatever you think about will control you because you just keep thinking about it, and it's, you just keep thinking about it over and over again. It occupies your mind. It's going to occupy your life. And so yesterday, I remember I was setting up some heaters, and... Uh, And I was just thinking about this and I just said, shut up Satan, just shut up. And I just like silenced him and the voice of, of making others pay and working that through and thinking about it rather than absorbing that pain into yourself and forgiving and remembering what Christ has done, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why Ephesians 4 tells us we are to put aside all bitterness and anger and slander and malice and everything that relationally decomposes us because Christ has forgiven us. And so John the prophet speaks and he encounters Jesus as the Lamb of God. And maybe this morning you're going to encounter him that way. Maybe there's something you need to absorb into yourself rather than making somebody else pay because you're following the model of Christ and the Word of God is speaking to you. But second of all, I found another one here. Andrew, Simon, and Philip. They encounter Jesus and he sees them and he finds them And he renamed Simon Cephas, which is so interesting because Simon, who is now Cephas, who is Peter, will live into that name, the rock, the Petros. Because in Matthew 16, there's a play on words when Peter makes the profession that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and then Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Petros and Petra. Petra is the rock. Petros is the person. Peter's profession becomes the rock of faith that builds the church. Peter's going to live into that. His identity gets changed. Remember, these are fishermen. It says next that when he meets Philip, what does he say? Believe in me? He doesn't say, Believe in me. He says, Follow me. See, Jesus doesn't want believers, he wants followers. Jesus is so focused on discipleship that he doesn't call people believers, he calls them followers. You are a follower of Christ when you set aside yourself and become obedient to Christ and give your life to him and follow him. And it begins to change every part of who you are. You become, as Jesus says in Matthew 4, when he encounters the fisherman again, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of whom? Humanity. Fishers of people. Fishers of women. Fishers of men. No longer fishermen and fisherwomen. Their identity changes. Why does their identity change? Because that's what Jesus wants to do and encounter is give you a new identity. Give you a new perspective of yourself. Looking now at yourself as a modern day fisherman. You're a worker. You're involved in business. You're in the service industry. You own your own business. You're an employee. But you are so much more than that. He transforms you in that encounter to seeing yourself not as just simply a worker, but someone who's fishing for others, focused on others. It's seeing your profession and your life pursuit as now being an opportunity to introduce others into this discovery of who Jesus is. Their identity changed. That's what happens in this encounter. I wonder, my identity has totally radically changed through these encounters with Christ over the years. I begin to see myself more clearly. I mean, even when I was in business and real estate, it wasn't about business. It was, it was about how I treated people and how I conducted myself as a follower of Christ in real estate. It was so much more than the money, it was so much more than simply gaining power or control or moving up on the ladder and all the other stuff that I've tried to pursue in latter years in the ministry of all places. Well, I need a bigger title. I need more importance. Well, I'd like to put this on my business card. It's like you finally reach a point where it's like, does it really matter? Will it ever matter? Seriously. How does God see us? He sees us through our professions, and our daily responsibilities as individuals who have a greater responsibility, a greater perspective, a greater identity. I know who I am now. I definitely have finally gotten it. Through an encounter, multiple encounters. And A.W. Tozer wrote an article called, We Need Better Christians. And his idea is that the message that we share is in direct relationship with the quality of the person giving it. Now that's worth thinking about. In other words, is the message really that valuable and impactful if it is not backed by the quality of the person sharing it? We say it when we want. Just got to live it. It's got to impact your everyday attitudes, responsibilities, working hard as under the Lord. That's what happened when these young men encountered Jesus. They got new identities. And finally, one last thing. I love Nathaniel in this passage in John, in John chapter 1. Now Nathaniel, and it says that he's he asked the question, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth was really, literally a back country. I mean, it was the bayou. It was just, you know, there, no, nothing was going on in Nazareth. And yet Jesus comes from Nazareth. And then Jesus says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit, no guile. That is, no divisiveness, no divided heart, no deceitfulness and it's a play on words, by the way, because the one original Israelite, Jacob, whose name became Israel, was the deceiver. He deceived his brother out of the birthright. And now we find an Israelite, and there's no double-mindedness. And, and so we know something about Nathaniel. and then Jesus says, well, how do you know me? He says, before... Philip came, I saw you under the fig tree. Now the fig tree, it's interesting, Leon Morris points out, and you need to understand this, is that it potentially just refers to the home. may not actually be a fig tree. The fig tree in three different references in the Old Testament actually refer to the home itself. Come out, invite someone into your vineyard, invite someone into your vine or into your, your fig tree. So the fig tree, the vine, represented your dwelling, your home. So basically, essentially what Jesus is saying is, I saw you at home, and I saw what you do, and Israelites would contemplate, and they would spend time in their home. It was a reference to his personal quiet time with God. He was personally seeking after God himself in his home, and Jesus saw that a man who was not divisive and deceitful, but he had a heart that wanted to know God and he spent time in his home searching and waiting and learning and growing wanting to encounter and then he says Nathaniel says Rabbi you are the son of God you're the king of Israel and then Jesus one-ups him and says basically you think this is awesome you're going to see greater things than these come through your life why because like Jacob's ladder in the Old Testament The heavens are open. The angels of God are now descending and descending on the Son of Man. The Son of Man becomes the ladder, the bridge between heaven and earth. We celebrate the bridge because now Jesus is the bridge between all that is eternal and all that is mortal. The power of heavens as the angels are bringing the power, the greater things are coming through the angels, through Jesus, into the lives of seekers. So Nathanael is one of those people seeking deeply after Jesus. Meets him, and Jesus says, greater things will come. Greater things. The power of heaven will come down on you. Do you believe that? In your encounters, that your personal encounters matter. They change things. I remember, uh, uh, Scott, the, um, I was reading the, through the Honest Advent, and it's, it's just been a great resource for Advent, uh, Scott the Painter. I call him Scott the Painter on Instagram. But um, Scott Erickson wrote this Honest Advent, and in one of his um, devotions, he, he draws the lamb broken. And it's connected by a spring, and he's got Alpha and Omega between the broken parts of the Lamb. And he writes over the head, who was, referring to Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And it's the who was that captures Scott's attention. Jesus is who was. He is, but he he is was, too. The who was. And what Scott says is that it's, it's this that impacted him. He's been around since the was. He sees everything. He has seen everything. He continues to see everything, and he sees you. And he sees you in your home. He sees you sitting up on the bluff. He sees wherever you are contemplating, seeking after him. Jesus sees you. He sees through walls. And he sees you and he cares. And there's this, he pays attention to the details of our life. And what Scott says is he really cares. He is the God who is paying attention to you. Who cares? Jesus cares. He's the Alpha and the Omega. When our son was in the hospital, he was in the hospital for eight months. And those were some desperate, desperate times. Um probably some of the most desperate times of our lives, seeking the Lord, waiting for a miracle, wondering what would happen. And what God was doing in all of this was reminding me, that's not your problem. That's my problem. He's my son. But you're my son as well. I care about you, and you need to learn how to differentiate, taking on the role of God and trying to solve the problem rather than really see the fact that I'm right here looking at you and I care. That was the moment of encounter for me that recognized the fact that I want to be a Nathaniel. And he showed up in so many different ways. Things would be left at our door. Gas money. I mean, certificates for gas money to drive to UCLA every day and back to visit our son for one hour. Or this, this Asian couple that were, that were part of our, uh, uh, old, our church before, that we really didn't know very well, brought all these Asian pastries from a bakery that were just beautiful, tasty. And then he dropped off a trumpet because he knew that Theo played the trumpet and gave it to us. And there were these little things that helped remind me that God really cares through other people. That God really sees your life and he's using others in your life to reveal to you his care and concern. And when I finally, finally got it, I recognized he sees me under the fig tree. He really does see me under the fig tree. And I press deeper and deeper into contemplation and pursuit of the Father. No longer seeking a result, but a relationship. In all these encounters, we meet Jesus, the giver of life. He's the Lamb of God, the giver of a new identity, and the giver of true purpose, encountering him. And you know, when I was reading through this, one last thought as we go to the table here in a minute to receive the blood and the flesh of Christ, which is the sacrifice, the Lamb of God is right there on display who takes away the sins of the world. I was praying for my grandkids and I've been praying for my grandchildren as I have prayed for my kids that they would become John's and Andrew's and Simon's And Philip's and Nathaniel's. And I'm praying that some will be Nathaniel's, seekers, deeper seekers of truth, of encounters with Christ. I'm praying for fishermen that get new identity as grandchildren, Peter's and John. Some will be prophets and will speak on God's behalf. So I'm praying for my grandchildren that they would fall into these categories and become these kinds of people that encountered the Christ who we celebrate this, this season. So, Father, as we head over to the communion, may we go with an anticipation that we are meeting and encountering the one who brings life, who gives us identity and purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. So when you're ready, You are welcome to join us at the communion, and I hope you have a great day.